0: You're listening to Who's to Say with Tom Foolery. My purpose in producing this podcast is first, to lay my own thoughts and experiences out there so that we can connect honestly and genuinely. In doing so, I'll be exploring the parts of my world that bring me the greatest intellectual stimulation. Health, training, philosophy, religion, tennis, books, teachers, and much more. When I'm joined by guests... I like to employ the proprietary technique of intersation, the blend of interview and conversation that embraces a fluid structure while leaving ample room for candid expression and romps down rabbit holes. This core idea behind Who's to Say is in drawing out the lessons and wisdom from other people's experiences, mixing them with our own to create something magical, timeless, and unique. I hope you find it insightful and useful. Please leave a review on your podcast app, And if anything in these conversations really strikes you, please share with family and friends, even enemies, if you think it'll help them out too. And now, enjoy this particular rendition of Who's to Say. Welcome back to another episode of Who's to Say. I'm your host, Tom Foolery, bringing you another tennis show with my guest, Jeff Sackman. He's the creator of TennisAbstract.com, a really fascinating site that I I think just genuinely stumbled across in my pursuit of more tennis data, tennis history, and he brings both of those in spades. His most recent project, the Tennis 128, is devoted to the greatest players of the last century. He ranks them according to three criteria that we discuss, players peak, their best five years, and the arc of their career. It's men and women. If you don't have much of an appreciation or, or have a burgeoning appreciation for tennis history, then this is an amazing place to start because the biographies that he has on these players backed up by the statistics from their career is incredibly valuable. And he's doing a great service to the game of tennis, which lacks a lot of intimate data. And we talk about in our interstation, his love of baseball and baseball analytics, which really launched his next hobby into tennis. We talk about the current state of the game. Uh, players who he's watching and tracking, the evolution of Tennis 128, and many, many more interesting facets of our mutual love of tennis. He's uh, really an eclectic guy. He has a great background in jazz orchestra, uh, professional musicianship, and uh, my only regret from this podcast is that since he was in Norway, where he's lived for the last several years, the connection uh, did posed some hiccups along the way and we had regrettably an abrupt end so jeff i look forward to our next time we get to do this and dive into more of your background but i'm so grateful that he was willing and able to take the time to engage in this wide-ranging intercession with me so i hope you enjoy this as much as i did without further ado i'd like to welcome jeff sackman jeff thank you so much for joining me today uh this is Really the best excuse to be able to have these kind of conversations is when you have a podcast, you invite people, you're very gracious and open. And to be honest, I don't quite recall how I stumbled across tennisabstract.com, but You have a really eclectic and interesting history in data uh, from what I was able to read up on you. So um, if we can start somewhat at the beginning, I mean, your accomplishments include some really fascinating contributions to baseball data, college baseball data. I hope we get to talk some about that. Just had a great World Series game three last night, which I don't know based on your time difference in Norway, if you were able to enjoy any of, but um, but take me back to, I mean, I, one of the things I thought was really interesting in your bio was you published GMAT prep books. So take me back to how you really launched yourself into this, I mean, from where I said a career in data analysis. Uh, well, I'd
1: like to say it was carefully planned, but it was definitely Um, I started out in college. It's just one of those jobs you get if you are in college and did well on standardized tests. So that's how I ended up doing that. Um, And I've never really liked working for people. So I went from working for Kaplan, the test prep company, to (laughs) to getting some of my own clients out along with me and uh, starting my own GMAT prep company. And then I realized, you know, I was teaching the same thing to the same people all the time, which gets a little boring when you're teaching the same like practice math problems over and over and over again. So I started writing them down, wrote, put together my own books, and that's how I have a GMAP or had a GMAP prep company. You can still buy my books, but I'm not sure if I recommend them at this point, like 15 years down the line. Um, I'm, I'm out of that world now, but around the same time, like I've always been a big baseball fan, and uh, and that was when Moneyball was happening and mm. I was getting involved in like the baseball analytics world online. I was writing for a website called the Hardball Times and was really into the Milwaukee Brewers then and writing my own Milwaukee Brewers blog. And like I've always been kind of a mathematically minded person. So all this analytics stuff, like I was really into it. I learned a lot about it, started trying to do my own and picked up a little programming. And I started a site called Minor League Splits, which was... Like basically the stuff that I wanted to see on the minor league baseball website that they didn't do themselves. So if you wanted to look up like a, like a prospect, I mean e- even a big name guy, and you wanted more than just their splits, like inning by inning, all, all, all this stuff we kind of take for granted now. It's all on the minor league baseball
0: website now, but 15 years ago it wasn't. Um, and is that our timestamp, Jeff? About 15 years ago when you were. Doing Brewers blog and really getting into the data, I mean posting, you know, making it available open source.
1: Yeah, I think I I think it all started around two thousand five, and and I think minor league splits first went up two thousand six. Um, yeah, that all seems about. What
0: was the Brewers roster like back then?
1: Oh, it was terrible. (laughs) Um, I think the well, the reason I ended up a Brewers fan was entirely because of Bob Uecker um I I moved to to Madison for a couple of years to do graduate work and that was what was on the radio and you know Bob uecker's awesome to listen to and honestly if you're if you're going to spend a season listening to Bob eucher on the radio do it when the team is awful because I mean it's just like the movie Major League like that movie's so funny because he's jabbering away as the team yeah. losing right and that was that was the Brewers in 2003 um he, he was fantastic, and you know, you forgot about the fact that you were listening to. I can't, I can't even remember that many players' names. It was so bad. Um, I remember yeah. the big free agent signing of Jeff soupon Um yeah.
0: that was a couple of years wow. later. But I mean, it, it, if you're getting so Jeff, you were talking about. I mean, I'll, I'll use this pause as my interjection because I, I had a baseball buddy throughout high school, very talented. You know, went went on and played some high A ball, but he told me or. or really Mm -hmm. shared with me early on how how much talent and skill you have to have especially as a radio baseball broadcaster because of all the dead time so so set aside if the team is winning or losing so much dead time that you have to fill with your voice with your information um and it sounded like he was pretty talented at that if you were you know ignoring the team's play and record and still really enjoyed listening to his voice oh Um, yeah i mean it's it's
1: I think a commentary for all sports is a really underrated skill. And that's something I've come to appreciate since I've gotten to know a few, uh, a few tennis commentators. Uh, hmm. if, if you talked to me 15 years ago when I was doing baseball analytics and that was still kind of an outsidery really, I mean, it's a nerdy thing now, but it was especially a nerdy thing. Then like, it's, it was really popular to pick on the announcers every time the announcers said something old fashioned, or we wouldn't use the word old fashioned. We just say that it was dumb, but if you think about how much time they spend talking, the fact that they're doing it all off the cuff, like the fact that you get through five minutes without saying something stupid. Like I promise I will say stupid things every few minutes on this podcast. I'm counting on it. <laughs> but the fact that the fact that they do it night in, night out, they're yeah. talking about players they might only see a few times a year. Like it's it's remarkable. The fact that they th- there's no ums or ahs, like I just inserted in the last sentence. It's it, it's a really impressive thing they do that I think we
0: tend to take for granted. Very much so, and and one question that came up that that I do have, a, a little further down the list is about tennis broadcasters. So are, are you familiar with Great Base Tennis? Uh, Florida based, they've got great Instagram content. They they have a budding podcast. Steve Smith is a guy who who runs it, and he's a product of some great coaches. Um, And and so they they talk a lot about tennis history, which sent me on the path to find you, I think. And uh, they're they're very critical of tennis broadcasters. And over my shoulder, I've got uh, some tennis TV on to watch the Paris Masters. But, I mean, shoot, aside from NBC, when French Open is on, ESPN, which is the same rotation, Chris Fowler, Johnny Mac, um, Patrick McEnroe, it's a very limited group. Tennis channel as well, but um, I I don't have too much to compare it to because it's only been these last couple years when I've really invested in making sure I'm I'm watching a lot of tennis just because I've I've rediscovered this passion. But I love your thoughts, man. On uh, you know you know like you said you know comparing baseball broadcasting to some of the tennis broadcasters, you know I would love to hear about some of those people in your life, but also the caliber or lack thereof in tennis broadcasting these days. Well, one problem in tennis broadcasting is that there's so many more um,
1: organizations that are that are doing some of it. So there's Tennis mm-hmm. TV, there's WTA TV, there's Tennis Channel, there's Amazon Prime. Although I think Amazon Prime is mm-hmm. something out of it. And then Eurosport hires people for the majors, and yep. ESPN mm-hmm. hires people for the majors. And like you say, NBC. I don't even know who owns all the rights to everything, but okay. that's a lot of that's a lot of Alphabet soup to hire talented people who can't often do this job full time. So the people who do it full-time are often great. Like there's a core group of guys who used to be Tennis TV, some of them are now Amazon Prime. Um Robbie Koenig, um, Jason yeah. Goodall, Nick Lester, those guys are fantastic. And I don't just say that because a couple of them are friends. Like I was saying they were fantastic before they became friends. Um, Ravi or Ravi Uba, he's a guy who does a lot of WTA broadcasts. Hmm. He's he's really good. Um Mike Cation does the uh, the broadcasts for US Challenger tennis. I mean, this is oh wow, this is minor league tennis, and he's yeah. doing a phenomenal job week in, week out. And like what sets those guys apart, I think, is because they're doing it regularly, they they know the players, they know the coaches, they've watched the matches, they really know their stuff. And the usual complaint against McEnroe and some of the other guys who are only there for the big tournaments is that. I mean, they know the game. I'm never going to tell you that, you know, John McEnroe doesn't know yeah. tennis. That'd be stupid of me. But they don't really know the players. So if they're calling like a U.S. Open second round match between Novak Djokovic and a qualifier, like you get the sense that John McEnroe didn't hear about the qualifier until the umpire announced his name. And I mean, that's, there's yeah. no excuse for that. I don't care how great your career record was. I don't care how great your personality is. You've got to do more preparation than that. And some of those guys, like if the guy sitting next to McEnroe, whoever that is for that tournament, maybe he has done that work. Often, often you will catch a little bit of that vibe that like they're trying to insert the the preparation that they know McEnroe doesn't have. Um, not yeah. always, but sometimes. And that's really valuable. But that's the problem. I mean, that's the problem with a lot of things in tennis is There aren't that many people who can make a full time living doing tennis, whether it's journalism or commentary or anything. So you end up with people who are very good at something, but that something is not a deep knowledge of tennis. Um, So you get good personalities, good voices. I mean, maybe a good sense of humor, but you don't get somebody who was paying attention when the tour was in Vienna or Gestad or in wherever the tour was when they were watching football or commentating NCAA basketball or something. I think that's the problem with, um, with the guys at the majors.
0: I think that's a a really fair and well-rounded criticism. I I think from my perspective to jump on a bit of what you were saying is when you have that lack of deep knowledge, even in some of the more marquee matchups, I find they're just talking about like, it's, it's like gossipy personality stuff. The, 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 commentary is not so much on the match and that and that's why i really enjoy uh especially the aussies on uh tennis tv is they're they're talking about tactics what's going on point to point the match itself they're not talking about well early earlier this year novak djokovic wasn't able to play in the australian open it's such a um they they repeat so much of that stuff and it, it really i feel like it detracts and this is why i'm very optimistic for um Maybe a bit of an evolution in the podcast space. Uh, I like I really enjoy the model that Joe Rogan has for a lot of things. But when he does uh, his MMA shows and he has people around him and they're watching fights and and yes, they're going off in totally different directions. But I, I would love to see more. YouTubers, podcasters, people who, who, you know, like yourself, follow the game very intently across the whole season, do some more live broadcasts, see if that finds its way into maybe some more uh, major media platforms. But I, I, yeah, I would love to see more of an evolution of that. If I can ask Jeff, how did you come to befriend some of these great broadcasters? Oh,
1: basically just on Twitter. Like they're all, they're all using my website and like they're, they're often the ones who find bugs or they have a question about an abbreviation or something. and, And that's all it is. I, I've gone to a few tournaments over the years and sometimes I'll, I'll get a chance to meet them in person and exchange a few words, but mostly it's just online. Like it's just
0: sort of hanging around in the digital space. That's well, you're using it to your advantage there. Of all the of all the dangerous elements of of social media, that's that's quite a positive one. So let us follow that trail actually, because it it's a tremendous website. I I have friends who are much more data minded than I am, and yet I, f- I find myself very keenly interested uh, in your website, and and I found it even before you embarked on the tennis one twenty eight, uh, the greatest players of the last century, which I I know we'll talk about in depth. But what inspired you to i mean there's there's so many places i'd like to start maybe we'll start with match charting because it was the great base folks i mentioned out of florida who talked about doing that whether you're a coach or a player uh what was your education in match charting and how did that evolve into your tracking and then the website um,
1: I have no education in match charting. <laughs> Amazing. I'm I'm not a I'm not a tennis coach. I was probably never a good enough tennis player to be a coach. Um, and I, I mean, honestly, I probably would have been better off if I knew more about what other charting techniques existed. Um, almost everything I've ever done in tennis is a variation of something that already exists for baseball. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason that I the tennis abstract exists is because there's all these great baseball encyclopedia type yeah. websites out there, and it Tennis didn't have one, so I wanted tennis to have one. Um, and baseball has a project called Retro Sheet, which is <laughs> it, it's also a volunteer-driven pro- process and a project, and it's it has set out to collect play-by-play of every major league game as far back as possible. And I'm actually not sure what this what the status is now, but I think they're back something like hundred years. There might be a few missing games here and there, but if you want to know like what happened in the sixth inning of you know, Phillies versus Braves on March 2nd, 1932, not March 2nd, but April 2nd, 1932, maybe then you can do it. It's there. And that means you, I mean, you can imagine how many stats that opens up that we didn't have 10 or 20 years ago. Um, and that's, that's part of where my my baseball business came from is creating play by play records of baseball games. So, to me, that's what tennis needed is just yeah. more detailed data. So, when I first started doing this stuff, you could go on the ATP web, P website and find that you know in this match, Djokovic hit this many aces, saved this many break points, and so on. But if you wanted to know like what was the longest game of the match, did he ever come yeah. back from love
0: forty? Did You can dream up 20 more questions like that. Uh, And and the ATP website doesn't have it. And if I'm remembering correctly, that's really what um, sent me in in search of your website was I I was trying to, especially as I want to start working with more players and and coaching i i do some coaching in the health and fitness world but uh still the the lack of data on the atp tour website i, I was baffled how, how could this be that they don't have the the really intimate telling stats i mean there's the great mark twain line of course that there's there's lies damn lies and statistics but i find the the depth of your data and tracking to be very telling i mean because yeah you can you can find much more um in, indicative elements of a match of a player's career uh like I said we'll get into how you assess uh players for the 128 but uh you filled a major role man and I wanted to celebrate you and and thank you for that because it's yeah it's the game was missing it in a, in a dire way yeah I
1: mean it's it's gotten better thanks to a lot of the volunteers who've contributed to the match trading projects. So we've got these shot by shot logs for over 10,000 matches. Now um, it's not, com- it's not complete. I mean, the number is misleadingly large. Like, I mean, it's, it's awesome. There's 10,000 matches there. Um, the, the downside is that, you know, we're missing another 10 or 20 or 30 or 40,000 matches. So if you wanted to know, like, for instance, I know English fiantex coaches use hmm. the site and consult, uh, consult those stats which is Amazing. phenomenal i mean i'm mean, really excited they do um but you know we don't have even have every match of ega's we have we're pretty close with ega but not every match of ega so if you really want to get a sense of how she performs against every opponent we don't quite have that you know we're it's moving that direction but it's going to be a while before it's really complete in order to really get something complete it has to be institutional probably like the the wta would have to um would have to take some role and probably fund it and I don't think the WTA is
0: about to do that anytime soon. is that anywhere on your dreamscape of not not quite an exit strategy? But do you have eyes to maybe working with more institutions to make it more of a of an established? I mean, I, it's it's certainly established now. It sounds like it's very um, dependent on some volunteer work. But yeah, is that anywhere on the horizon for you? Starting to broker those discussions no that's not okay. really my thing <laughs> and once you start talking about brokering discussions then i need
1: other people to be involved i yeah. mean this is tennis is is a hobby for me i mean it, it's it's become this this overarching obsessional hobby but it is still it is still a hobby i probably lose more money from it than i make so I mean know I, at one point if you talked to me maybe seven years ago or something i might have had a different answer for you but since i've watched a huge part i mean I don't want to. I don't want to lessen the number of people who do care, or say that I don't recognize how many people do care about like analytical work in tennis. But institutions don't care. I mean, I've gotten that message yeah. loud and clear for a decade, and I don't. It isn't a battle I care about fighting. I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm not frustrated with it. I'm not like bitter about it. I just. I just don't really care. Like I'm. I'm doing it as a fan for other fans, and that's fine for what it is. Like I don't. I don't need to turn this into a job or a business i have a job so like i I, i've ruined one hobby by turning it into a business so i've watched other people was that baseball (laughs) that was baseball yeah (laughs) and uh i don't need i I don't need to ruin another one so i'll let this continue to be a hobby and if you know the atp wants to step up and hire stringers to record every shot of every match then fantastic i'll have some fun analyzing that data um but it probably it won't be a direct
0: outgrowth of what i've done got it uh well like i said we're grateful to you man because i i you know how tennis fans are they are just like baseball fans they're um ravenously consume this stuff and and they you know it, it, it's such a like i said it's such a treasure trove of of information so uh you you have do you know how many volunteers is it in the hundreds or thousands of people who regularly contribute it's regularly contribute it's more like a dozen um okay. over
1: <laughs> over time it's been between 100 and 150
0: Amazing. Uh, well, I and, do a lot of- and i'm over, i'm overshooting just because i'm i'm seriously staggered by the Especially the the intimate details of, of this data. So I assume you have a whole legion of of people helping you out. But uh but even hey, a good a good dozen people, they're going a long way with you. Well, the key word there is good, which is that yeah. you no,
1: know, it's it's once once you get the hang of this, like for me, this is how I watch tennis. Like I, I don't watch tennis without a spreadsheet under my fingers, which sounds like the nerdiest thing you could possibly do. But you know, if you're you could just sit there and do nothing or eat popcorn or you could log the
0: match So i mean it's like keeping score in baseball and can you take me a little bit through that i i I looked over the excel sheet which i'm glad to have now especially we've got a little more tennis left to be played and i'm gonna have to take a stab at it but can you can you walk me through what it's like when you're watching a match yeah i mean it's um i I don't watch very
1: many matches live if if i get them on on video then i can skip through all the breaks probably my least favorite thing about tennis right now is there's just feels like the stretches between points are getting longer and longer so if you can yeah. skip through every 20 second break it takes me maybe 40 to 50% of the amount of time of the match to watch the match that way
0: um which which if i can if i can pick up on that just for a second because yeah. uh we're now in the era of the serve clock and you've been probably been watching tennis long enough to remember the time before of course is is that just your intuition speaking that you think because there's a I mean I think people thought it was going to speed up pace of play um but but what's what's your take on that do you think more players are taking full advantage of that you know which for us as spectators feels like a longer time and is it sort of i guess eroding a, a quicker pace of play what's your two cents on the pace I think something has to be done. I think if, even when this serve
1: clock first went in, a lot of people recognized it was going to give some players an excuse to use the whole time. Yeah. Um, because if, if you go back to, I don't know, five years ago, they were trying to roll this out. Maybe mm-hmm. um, 25 seconds is a long time between points. If you don't have a big crowd shearing or you're not yeah. gasping for breath. So most players didn't use it most of the time. And still most players don't use the full 25 seconds, but um oh I, totally independent of the clock I think pe- players are realizing it's better to have a really really strict routine between points whether it's an ace a yep. double fault a 20-stroke rally whatever um and that takes time I mean you, you look at who the best players are I mean obviously if you're looking at it all at Djokovic they're super slow but the best players coming up right now Feliz Ajay Ali he's a hottest guy right now on tour and, and that and is- that shot clock is down to two consistently he is so slow oh my <laughs> gosh he's slow and not only is he slow with like you say the shot clock goes down to two every time he's slow between first and second serves too i'll bet he uses oh, yeah. 10 15 seconds between first and second serves as well so if i didn't have the power to hit a button that's get me forward 10 seconds i would never watch that guy i love his game i think the sky's yeah. the limit but man it's boring i feel I mean, the same I, Painful stuff. Shviantek, again, absolutely love Iga Shviantek. She is almost as slow as Arjeli seems. So I think that's where it's going. I think coaches are telling players to take their time, to fully reset, to like go through all these routines. And they work out something that takes 23 seconds or maybe 37 seconds if the crowd is loud and the umpire gives them the time. So that's the direction we're going. And it needs to be ratcheted back hard. Hmm. Um, And- I don't see how the game is even watchable beyond that point. Um, It's just so little, so little hitting for so much time.
0: Yeah. Well, I feel like I didn't
1: answer your question, but I already forgot what it was. uh,
0: Just talking about what it's like going, going through a match with you. I think it's actually uh, quite informative to know that you prefer, or or maybe it's out of necessity watching it on replay, hitting that fast forward button. So you get to the action. Um, But yeah, I mean, with that, what are the, I guess the key points of match charting for, for people to know, because I I think it does help people. I've tried to light that fire in people to say, I mean, especially compared to other sports where, I mean, there's a lot of, I used to find football really entertaining, but even that has so much downtime. Uh, you know, and that's to say nothing of penalties. Re- everything gets reviewed. There- there's all that, but um, there's still a great amount of spontaneity in tennis, of course, and constant action of of the back and forth. So I- I've been lighting that fire, but um, trying to fuel that fire even more with getting people to pay attention to the games within the games, the significance of you know you can you can lose so many points and and still win a set, win a match. Um, so. I, I guess, if I'm to boil it down, um, key things you're looking for in match charting that you think are really significant? Well, the key insight that I picked up from
1: Retro Sheet, the baseball project I mentioned, mm-hmm. is I'm not looking for insights. I'm collecting data. I, and that's, that's, that's the key thing with, I think most people learn this of necessity eventually, but some people forget that Data collection is totally separate from data analytics, which is Mm -hmm. totally separate from sharing it, whether it means you're you're writing about it or visualizing it or something. And in tennis, the the steps get blended together because there aren't that many people doing it. So I might be collecting one day and analyzing another day and writing about it the day after that. But that still means they're separate things. So my goal with the match charting framework is all you're doing is collecting like sort of a ground level of data. So we're recording the direction of every serve, um, the type of shot for every shot, forehand, backhand, slice, volley, whatever, Uh, the direction of every shot. So like cross court down the line, inside out or something like that down the line, Uh, the depth of returns. So inside inside the service box or deeper than that. And then at the end of the point, what type of point ending it was. So did, did it end on a winner, unforced error, forced error? What happened there? Was it a drop volley as opposed to a normal volley? Stuff like that. Um, so if you look at the match, the, um, the match chart spreadsheet, when it's completed, it's just that raw data. Every point yeah. just has, you know, this is where the serve went. This is what the next shot was. This is where that went and that that's it. And then I've got a whole bunch of code that plows through that and generates the, the stats like what percentage of serves went this direction? What percentage of the forehands were in points that were that the player won? How many backhand volleys were winners? Like that kind of stuff, and compare those to averages. But it starts with the data collection, so it, that's one reason why I and a few other people uh, have piled up lots and lots and lots of match charts. Is it's pretty mindless. I mean, it's just mm. it's just like keeping score at a baseball game. Everybody knows how to do that. You can learn to keep a, keep score at a baseball game when you're six years old. Because it's it is pretty mindless. If you know what a triple is, you can write down three B in your scorecard. Match charting in tennis is more complicated than that. But once you learn, like that, I you know, forehand is an F, volley is a V. Yeah. Uh, once so you learn it, that and get it on your fingers, it's automatic.
0: I was going to say, is is that a is it a pretty steep learning curve to get in the in the groove of? know just how to log that or do you think it takes a while to because it doesn't sound mindless i mean just with (laughs) so so many options of how a point can play out um and and yes you have a a very useful background in in this collection and and thank you as well jeff for making that distinction because i i err in that as i think a lot of lay people do is thinking just capital d data is that it includes the analysis the insight the sharing but i mean uh, the the bulk of what we're talking about here. Is just a collection, and that still takes a lot of work. But, um, but for anyone who's um, maybe keen to get into it, any any, it, do you think it's a steep learning curve, or does it take a little longer to get acclimated? It, it takes a little time to get
1: acclimated, just because there there's so many codes. Like I think there's yeah, let's see. I mean, for, there's there's probably twenty to thirty individual single character codes to learn. Some of them are pretty natural. Like I said, F is forehand, B Mm -hmm. is backhand. I'm guessing you can learn those pretty quick. But when it gets to the point in a rally where it's a a half volley or a backhand smash or something, like I've talked to people who've charted 20 matches and they still haven't got those memorized. So I mean, there's a sort of a cheat sheet you can use to, to remind yourself of those, but it takes a little time. And for me, like I say, it's, it's under my fingers. It's like touch typing. Like yeah. I can watch a match and it's all natural. It it probably takes, I don't know, let's say 10 matches before it's really, it's really automatic and you can do it in real time. I know some people still after doing more matches than that still don't really do it real time. Hmm. Um, but also that's the nice thing. If you, if you find a match that's on YouTube or something, you have the video, you can pause it or you can slow it down. Um, I think that that speeds up the learning curve. So, I mean, it depends a lot on the person. There's a ton of variety from what people have told me. Some people seem to pick it up after one or two full matches. Other people take a lot longer, but just if you know yourself, like how long does it take to memorize some codes? How how comfortable are you touch typing? That helps a lot because it helps to watch the match and type simultaneously. Oh yeah, uh, That's a big part of it too, but it's I mean, that's the key thing. It's just a little bit, bit of memorization and beyond that, it, it it gets pretty mindless. It just forces you to pay attention to the match, which to me is one of the big the big advantages. Like you said, like getting into the games within the games and just to me, that just means watching it. It's really easy to you know, yeah. be listening to McEnroe and be sucked off by, by the story. Um, but
0: you stay focused on the tennis this way. Well, and and this speaks to a greater issue when I listen to especially tennis coaches working with young athletes, they say what a chore it is to get people, even young, competitive, ambitious players to sit down and watch a two hour match. I mean, I, I there's. I, I didn't grow up with background TV. I, you know, it's funny because my girlfriend did. She just likes having, you know, and, and she's a big knitter now. So she'll, she's just content to have the tennis on while she knits, but I, I'm, I'm watching every ball and, and every movement and and watching them breathe, you know, see, see what they're, are they breathing through their mouth in between points you know, are they, are they taking the full shot clock? I mean, there's. This is this is what, part of why I find it to be so enthralling and romantic is there are so many things you can pay attention to now that I have this new venture getting into the, the data collection, the insights. I mean, th- this is probably our perfect segue into you looking back through history. But uh, off the top of your head, Jeff, do you know roughly how many years back of matches? I mean, I, I'm curious about what you've had to do to track down matches from years past. Talk about early 2000s i mean what you've been able to compile uh for Federer's career was super impressive um when and, and and let's see i mean i i think in in the early 2000s i was only really watching major tennis i mean i, I don't remember e- even some of the masters especially if they weren't in the US i don't remember them being on uh really cable tv so what kind of lengths have you had to go to to go back over the last 20 years to to get data well, it was mostly just
1: a lot of searching. Um, I mean, everything I find is mostly online. But like you say, yeah, there was no tennis TV before I don't know two thousand nine or so. Yeah. Maybe that's. I think that's when they tell me my subscription started, and the WTA was hasn't been that good for as long. So. Yeah um before that though i think maybe before the time frame you're you're remembering there was more tennis on tv mm. um a lot of people owned vcrs and they used them a lot yeah. uh, a lot of that has been digitized so j- even if you just go on youtube go on youtube search for like steffi graf full match you will find i wouldn't be surprised if you could find a 100 steffi graf matches just Incredible. um just on youtube um the downside of that is that you end up with a very, very top heavy mix of players. So you yeah. might have, you know, a hundred Steffi matches, 50 Gabriela Sabatini matches, because hmm, I don't know why people are watching Gabriela Sabatini so much. <laughs> um, and then 10 or 20 matches of some more top players. And then if you're looking for some specific player, like Lori McNeil, super interesting woman, who's a great player, um, you might find three maybe. Yeah. So it, it goes down really fast, but There are a few things like if you're looking for historical matches, tennis TV itself has a lot of um, master spinals and some back to the nineties. And I mean, just, just trawling YouTube. uh, Some, there are some torrent sites if you want to get a little shady about it, um, that'll have more historical matches. And then there's a whole network of, of DVD collectors and traders that that has died down somewhat in the last five, 10 years because mm. so much is already online. Like there's no point in being a being a DVD trader if you can just go on <laughs> YouTube for everything, but that still exists to some extent. So some of the very oldest matches, uh, some of those, you kind of got to have connections to track down and I don't always have those connections. Um, But if you look at what's in the data set, that's a good description of what is out there. Like we have over a hundred Steffi matches. We have more than a hundred Becker matches and Agassi matches. You can find a lot of those on YouTube still. Um, But if, if there's some particular player from the eighties or even worse the seventies you're interested in, then you better cross your fingers and hope they played like a major semifinal against somebody more famous than themselves. And maybe video will exist for that one. So And then you run into the problem of the the quality, which is obviously not going to be that great (laughs) if it was, especially if it was like a a broadcast and then it was videotaped by someone and the the VHS was digitized. So there's definitely some matches I chased down for a long time. And then when I got the video, I thought, do I really want to try to follow the ball for an hour and a half? No kidding. Maybe go blind young.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, great that the resources are out there, but uh, an incredibly valiant effort on your part and an, and an exhaustive one, too. I may have mentioned in our email correspondence what uh, really ignited my interest now in tennis history was reading Rod Laver's uh, autobiography. And I mean, shoot, have you, have you ever seen more than a handful of Rod Laver matches? Have you been able to consume any of any of that kind of era? Yeah, we have some, I know I've, we've charted his,
1: I think it was his first major title or maybe no, it was his first major final, the one he lost. Um, I, I, I'm horrible with specific years, but I think he lost that one to Alex Olmedo, maybe, Hmm. um, and yeah, there's a fair number floating around like most major finals, especially Wimbledon finals. You can find out yeah. there. I mean, it, the sad thing is all those lost years that people weren't really broadcasting or recording anything from the professionals before 1968, but no. you can watch his Wimbledon Australian U S open finals from the late sixties and early seventies. And there, there's one that, um, uh, there's one match from, I think 1977, a match between him and Borg, uh,
0: it's out there. So yeah, you can you can watch a lot of labor if you want. Oh to. good. Yeah, I I haven't found myself in that rabbit hole yet, but uh I think this is a perfect time to kick off the discussion around Tennis 128 and and you do a you you wrote a brilliant introduction. I'll be linking to this stuff specific pages on your website so people can read this for themselves, but when did the inspiration really hit and when did it become actionable that you said uh well and first of all I have to tip my cap to you again because I've got the baseball 100 on order uh because baseball history of course is so fascinating too and we lose I think the appreciation a lot of this does blend into a conversation about different eras and you've given great credence to the trying to balance out that discussion but as Federer has said you have to give people their due within their So. When did the inspiration dawn on you to take on this project and uh, how did you come up with your criteria? You know, I I think you mentioned the three kind of core perspectives being a player's peak, their five best years or so, and then their career arc. So if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit of the story that finally launched you to take on the greatest players of the last century. Yeah, I mean, and that's a good example
1: of the separation between data collection and all the other steps of the process. Because one of my pandemic lockdown projects was to try to fill out the history of women's tennis. Mm -hmm. So before, yeah, before maybe two years ago now, if you looked at Tennis Abstract and looked at Chris Everett's page or Martina Navratilova's page, um, a ton of stuff was missing from the 1970s. Um, and that's the same if you look at the WTA site or the ITF site, it's just not out there. Um, there's a there's a forum that, um, that that collected a lot of this stuff in just in text form and there's a really obscure book where a guy named John Dolan put it all together in in book form. But if you wanted a database of you know what did Chris Everett do in 1975, yeah. it's not there or it wasn't there. So my first project was just going back through the whole open era and filling out the women's tennis database. And I added, you know, some untold number of thousands of matches. And now you can look, and there's the 80 matches between Martina and Chrissy, and there's all their other matches from that time. But once you get back there, you sort of the ongoing problem I've faced is once you do one tennis project, it's related to some other tennis project that um, that is not complete. So if you're if you get women's tennis a full data set back to 1968, then you have half of Billie Jean King's career and half of Margaret Court's career. Yeah. And that's not very satisfying and it can't stop there. So I kept pushing it back and doing more research and, and converting the, the typed up results in this, in this um, tennis forum into a database. And my first goal was let's get Margaret Court's whole career. And in the process you get Billie Jean King's whole career, and then you can do a better analysis of Margaret Court's Australian opens and, then you get back to 1960 or 61. And of course you get there and hmm, there's some careers that get cut off halfway. <laughs> so keep going yeah. back, keep going back. At one point, I remember telling telling my friend I was going to stop when I got back to World War II. That seemed like a good breaking point, like 1946. Before that, Wimbledon was shut for six years. Yeah. Uh, most, most tournaments were shut down for six years. So if there was ever a breaking point, that was it. So at one point, my great idea was women's tennis only to do the best 75 players of the last 75 years because um, that 75 years is basically back to world war II. Mm-hmm. And I drafted a list of that. And I don't remember why I didn't do it. I, I remember the list. I might, I probably still have the document somewhere, um, but I didn't. And I, 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 instead I just kept going. So I, I went back through the forties and thirties and ultimately I'm back to 1915 when I finally decided I could take a break. Jeez. Um but then simultaneously with that, like as I was building that massive women's tennis database, um, that's when Joe Posnanski was writing the Baseball 100. And mm. Joe Posnanski is my favorite baseball writer, probably my favorite sports writer, has been for a long time. He's just an incredible writer. Like his, his love for baseball shines from every paragraph he's ever written in his entire life. I mean, he's, he's such a good writer. I read his book about golf. I don't know how to give a higher compliment than that. Like I read a whole freaking book about
0: golf um, and and loved it. I mean, he, he's that good. And oh, I can't wait to get it. I've As I said, I've got it on order and I'm,
1: I'm fired up. Yeah. You should probably just set aside a couple of weeks of your life. Yes. Like, like call out of work, cancel all your engagements, <laughs> tell, send your girlfriend off on holiday. Just it's, it's that good. It really is. Yeah and that i figured you know if joe can do this for baseball then i actually don't know why i thought if joe can do this for baseball i can do this for tennis because that does not logically follow at all but that's what i thought thought it would be fun and i realized i had the data to go 100 years back um the men's data is actually not in as good a shape as i thought there's a website mm-hmm. called tennisarchive.com which has a huge, an absolutely huge tranche of men's data from the amateur era. It's a really impressive website, not that great to navigate, but it's an incredible, incredible effort. I think when I first plowed through it, I did I calculated it had like half again as many matches in its in its amateur era mm-hmm. data set as I had for women. So I figured, oh, 50% more. That must be pretty complete. No, it's Damn. so much is left to be done. But it's enough. So I mean it, it's enough to come to to get a pretty good idea of Tilden and Budge and, and Kramer and all those guys. So I figured, okay, we finally have the data. Someone can finally do a a, a list that goes back hundred years. I guess it'll be me. And I, I I aim to follow Joe's basic structure of you know making a making a plausible list but making it more about the stories. Like I, I think a lot of people when I first launched the project they kind of expected the essays would all be like number one to number 27 is Stan Bob here is why San Barbarinka is number number 127, as in not 125, not 129, but 127. And frankly, that sounds like the most boring thing I can imagine. Like I've I've made some comments about why players are ranked where they are, but I mean that's that gets boring really fast. And oh, I, yeah. I don't know
0: if Joe did that at all in his entire project. Well, you you've avoided that very adroitly, and, and that's what's so uh entertaining to be honest to follow the list is you you blend the critical data nicely with a story with some com- uh, commentary of your i mean i remember reading about amelie moresmo which was such a great uh refresher for me i i wasn't following the game as intently but just to think about some of the the personal storylines that uh are are worth giving time and words to to consider in their career uh if if we can diverges for a second I, i'd love to get your your boundaries maybe on the because that because we kick this around back and forth often of whether or not in a given i think this really shines through in basketball is um 80s 90s there seemed to be a real wealth of great players it seemed like every team had two or three stars uh that really which is why the league was so competitive and it seems Maybe a little more diluted over the years, but uh, is there an era that really stands out that you can bracket off where it seemed like there was the cream of the crop was, I mean, much more substantial than years past? You were mentioning some great players from, uh, I guess, mid part of the century, the or early parts in the Jack Kramers, the bulges, uh, guys like that, any era that really, uh, you know, neglecting maybe the last 10, 20 years of the big three. But of course, for those people who aren't as familiar with the game as you and I. A lot of players, the the Stans, the Murrays, the Roddicks, the, the people who get over over or, I guess, outshone um, in these eras. So if, if, I, if I'm to simplify this, is there any era that really stands out to you in your research where you thought, wow, there really is a surfeit of great players who haven't been given their due because maybe they didn't sweep every bloody major or anything? Is there any time frame that really seems significant to you for the wealth of talent? Well, women's
1: tennis from you can start in the, really in the late 70s all the way through about 2005 or so I mean it's not continuous that's a hmm. pretty long stretch of time like 25 years and it's not it's not constant but if you the thing that's always struck me about the women's professional era is it feels to me like it's twice as many generations that it really is like you start with Christian well and Martina. Said, yeah. Then you have you have Tracy Austin, then then you have Steffi Graf and Sabatini coming along and and then you've got Celis and then and then you've got Lindsay Davenport, Martina Hingis, and then you've got the Williams sisters and then you've got Henna and Pleisters and like that sounds like six or eight generations, but they all play each other. I mean, yeah. I think there was, there's some stat that Serena played like every WTA number one, except for Chris Everett. And that's not probably yeah. not right, but so, something like that. It's so, all you're,
0: so well, compressed. And you produced that list of uh, female players born between, what was it, like 75 and 85? And it's all these world number ones. Yeah, exactly.
1: And, and it gets jumbled up. Like I just wrote about Lindsay Davenport a few days ago and yeah. Lindsay Davenport came on the scene about 1994, which is the same year that, that Hingis came on the scene, the same year that Venus Williams debuted, but Davenport was four years older than Hingis. Uh, she was oh, I think three years old, four years older than Venus Williams. And she arrived at the same time, but then you've got Henna, who's not that much younger coming along much later. I mean, she, she was there a little sooner, but she, um, she didn't become number one until several years after Venus became number one. Before Serena won some slams, like it feels like they're separate generations, and they're just not. So, I mean, just the fact that Steffi Graf was still, I think she won her last slam in '99, '98 oh. or '99. Oh, that's like, surreal. It's, it's just the the fact that someone's playing now who played Steffi Graf, maybe not at her peak, but at something peak like, like it's just it's so compressed. And if you think about that, that if it feels like six generations, but it was really three then how good does that mean they all were? Like we, we tend to think of of Steffi as dominating to the extent that mm, the field wasn't, wasn't very strong. There's a ton of comments from the late 80s, early 90s that the field was weak. There were just these few really, really amazing players like Steffi and Monica Sellish. disingenuous, sort of. It looks that way now, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you can see why people said it because if, if you watch Steffi Graf win a major by you know, losing no more than three games in every match or something. It, it does look like the field is pretty weak, but then when you look at what's happening when she's not there and someone like the Garrison, depending on the year, or Conchita Martinez or the, some of these other, I don't want to say second tier, they're not second tier <laughs> players, but compared to Stephanie, everybody is. Uh, some of these second tier players, then they went and dominated everybody else. So, I mean, it, I hate to kind of leave it back on the algorithm, but when you do the math on this stuff, it's just, Holy crap. I mean, obviously, yes, Steffi was amazing, but you, you know, I expected, I was was actually surprised that Gabriella Sabatini didn't get more pushback on my list. I mean, she Mm. was number 31, which is like right up there with some serious greatest of all time contenders. She won one major. I mean she spent her whole career in the shadow of Steffi Graf. That's how good my algorithm thinks that era is that you can win one major and be the 31st best player the last hundred years. And that pretty much sums it all up. You've got Mary Jo Fernandez, Zena Garrison. Never cracked the top two in the world, top three in the world. They're still
0: top 100 on my list. Like that's that's how good it was. What do you what do you think it is about tennis? I'm trying to think how to how to phrase this question, but uh, I mean, really, for especially with how casual and, and um, sort of surface level fans have become, where like if you're not in the top five, people think you're second tier. Which is you know just just staggering to me because those are obviously world class the the you know fraction of one percent who are competing at the highest level year after year to have uh you know to maintain a high ranking I don't know what do you think it is about tennis that people don't give you know they, they don't they don't attribute the caliber to these great historic players a a, a Mary Joe a Gabrielle just because they don't have the slam total um. I, what do you think that mentality is all about? Why, why do we miss the mark in evaluating well, I've, talent?
1: I've, yeah, I've thought about this a lot and I'm not mm-hmm. sure I have a, a great answer, But, um, but if you think about team sports, like a test I'd love to run on a large number of people is like, okay, if you're a baseball fan and a tennis fan, like we both are, then like, okay, how many baseball current baseball players can you name? And I'm, I'm guessing from our brief conversation, like you could probably reel off a hundred active baseball players. No problem. Right. Like I know my, my dad could probably give you 500 off the top of his head. Yeah. I couldn't do it anymore, but there was a time I could give you 500 plus a few hundred prospects who weren't even in the major leagues yet. And there's a lot of baseball fans who can do that. Um, how many tennis fans could give you the names of a hundred active tennis players? Like, I I don't think there's many. There's some, I mean, I, I yeah. almost everyone I know, but I don't know that many people. <laughs> um, I have a very select group of acquaintances. I, um, I admire that. There's not Correct. a lot of people that can do that. And what I think mm-hmm. it is, is I mean, partly it's just a team sports thing. But if you think about team sports, any player is notable for something like who is mm-hmm. who's the best catcher in the National League, who's the best power hitter in the AL West, who's who was last year's all star from the Kansas you know? City Royals. Like there's something distinctive and great um, about hundreds of guys. And that isn't. I don't want to take anything away from any of them. They really are that good. If you're the top one of the top 500 baseball players in the world, holy crap! Uh, But if you're not one of the top five tennis players in the world, what are you the best at? Like you can say, okay, Nick Kyrgios has the most electric serve, or I've got some numbers I haven't really published yet showing that Mikael Imer is like Mm. the best defensive player in the game. So okay, he's got something. Do you, do you know yeah. if he, do you know if he won earlier by any chance? Actually, I saw he won the first set. Yeah. I was curious about that too. Still going as we're You're kidding. Right. Oh, geez. Well, wow. that's, that's some, that just like we were talking about when you're taking 30 seconds from every serve <laughs> and 15 seconds before every second serve. Yeah. They're
0: almost at the three hour mark and it's three, yeah. two in the third set. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and interesting that he, okay. Yeah. So these are, these are the stories that some of the, the data tells that are shocking and, and, I mean, you couldn't you couldn't pick anyone out of a crowd who knows Emer and where he's from and how he's rising through the rank. I mean, that's. So, yeah, it's it. A- well, the the one exception, which I think is, is useful here, is
1: that the where you could get people who can pick Emer out of a crowd is in Sweden. And that's obvious. Yes. He's Swedish. Like it, he, he's the Swedish number one right now. So if you have any swedish any swedish fan would not only know right now but they would have known about a couple of years ago before well, he was the number one
0: and and quickly jeff i mean you you can probably give more uh perspective to this is that here in the states we're, I mean, we're we're distracted by so much anyway but having the hub of so many sports be here football baseball basketball hockey to name a few hockey we we share with our neighbors but um tennis international sport for sure but to be a to be the uh you know the british number two if you're if you're jack draper say um you know in 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 the uk it's what golfers boxers soccer players and tennis players in sweden it's soccer players tennis but you know what i mean like like these these individual athletes more so than i mean so soccer is predominant for sure but is it your opinion maybe that across the pond and around the world tennis players are you know higher on the public profile is that is that fair to say yeah definitely and
1: I, I think there, there's some way of of crunching the numbers say that tennis is the number two sport in the world I mean it's hmm. it's not really because it, I mean it's way further on the list than that but in a lot of countries it's the number yeah. two sport uh, behind behind soccer, behind yeah. football, um, in Norway, it's like where I live. I hear a ton about Casper Ruud. Um, I'm sure long long before he was a Grand Slam finalist. Like I remember when there was a challenger final on national TV because Rude was in
0: it. Wow. Um, yeah. Can and- you, can you, can you share any more Jeff on that? Like what you've been privy to in his rise, because I mean, for him to be in, uh, two major finals this year, super, super special. I mean, I'm, I, I really enjoy watching him, but for as long as you've been tuned into his career, what do you know about his, his camp, his, uh, his development, anything you can share on that would be really interesting. Not, not to uh- test you, but.
1: Yeah, wow. no I'm not sure I, I know much that wouldn't that wouldn't be sort of in the international domain um I just I mean he he trained in Spain his family I think mortgaged oh. their house so they could move to Spain interesting he, he, yeah. he can't really train in Norway there's there's not yeah. really a tennis scene here and certainly you're not going to train outdoors most of the year
0: yeah um so but it's still still interesting to hear that a challenger tournament he was in was a national deal I mean that's that's pretty cool. I, mean, I think that
1: that's what sticks out to to answer your previous question is there's a to me the what I think tennis could do a better job marketing its players is like tell me why I should care about Jack Draper if I'm not a yeah. British fan and there's an answer to that question I don't have it off off the top of my head but just look at someone like Ons Jabeur like it, it's really easy to get excited about her because she has an unorthodox game she. Hits cool drop shots, she does nifty things at the net. That might not be exactly why she wins, but it's easy to be a Jabur fan. Um yeah. I find it super easy to be an Arena Sabalenka fan. She's immensely entertaining, um, even if I never set foot in Belarus, certainly not right now. But tennis doesn't do a great job of 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 uh promoting that in that way. So you really only Agreed. get sort of global attention until you get before you get to the top. Um, uh, but back to like how all these all these players get i guess yeah how many players get attention how they get their attention a lot of them do get it from their from their national fan bases and like you say there's so much competition in the u.s for attention that i don't even i don't know who the u.s number one right is right now um but i think it's, it's, I, think for- it's I think it's tiafoe Okay, if it's Tiafo yeah. or Fritz and mm, oh, I feel be like Fritz too right? Yeah. He's, he's still in the mix for the tour final. So that's right. Whether it whoever it is, whether it's Fritz or Tiafo or somebody else, like you've got to do a lot to to break through. You're not, yeah. you're not gonna be on the cover of Sports Illustrated because you won in Atlanta. Uh so yeah. it it but Maybe. I think that's that's not a good it's not a good indication of the health of the game outside of the US because you can you can win a 250 and be on the cover of a magazine in Sweden or yeah. Austria or something.
0: And and deservedly so. I mean, the merit is there to win any, any tournament on the Pro Tour, even a bloody challenger. I mean, as you're as you're rising to the ranks is is world class. Um one other thing that came up while you were talking earlier, uh, and I don't know how much you can speak on this, but institutions, whether it's ATP, Tennis Australia, USTA, have you, have you been able to do any digging? I mean, re- reading Rod Laver's biography was really interesting to read about Harry Hopman. And, and I, I think Australia has really, tennis Australia has really become one of the marquee uh, tennis institutions internationally. I think Canada's up there, probably Russian Tennis Federation as well. Do you have any... I, I don't know, just any stories to tell on on who you think a really good tennis institution is right now. I hear a lot of criticism about USTA just in terms of um the the really lackluster job they're doing in educating tennis coaches and how to how to really embrace tennis instruction physics-based fact-based not just i mean one of the things that killed me what you you may have seen during the u.s open the usta commercial of the girl tossing the ball and whiffing and it hits her in the face and the coach says it's okay and it's like i mean talk about dropping the bar so low and and you know maybe they're just trying to get people in in the door but uh i mean my my questions all over the place but yeah with, with your research and appreciation of tennis history do you have any sense of who's doing a great job among the tennis institutions right now? Well, I think I think it's easy to overstate the potential effect of an
1: institution. You know, mm-hmm. the one thing that, that the more I read tennis history, the more I learned that the, the the countries that are powerful now, the institutions that are look to be effective now, they're the same ones that were effective ten years ago, twenty years ago, fifty years ago, even a hundred yeah. years ago. Like, why is it that Australia, which is a small country, So good at tennis now relative to its size. Why does it have a major? Well, the reason it has a major is that it's always had a major. That's pretty much it. It's always been there, so it's there. Um, why is it a major and not just a national tournament? Well, because Australia was so good in the Davis Cup before World War One. That's why they have a major now. So all they did was never lose it. That's pretty much it. Like, I mean, and that's not a that's not a simple thing if you're Australia, but if you were I don't know if you were the Philippines, then you're the same distance away, roughly. Yeah. But it's it's a lot harder to to climb the ladder if you're the Philippines than it is to fall down the ladder if you're Australia. Um, so a lot of the success now you can trace back to success before even Italy. People talk about mm-hmm. Italy a lot right now because Italy has so many young players coming up. Um, they're putting on tons and tons of challengers. They've got more. It yeah. seems like they've got more tour level events every year. And all that stuff's good. That stuff's important, but you know, Italy's been pretty good all along, it's never been this good, or maybe not been this good for a long time. But there's always been a tennis establishment in Italy, there've always been tournaments in Italy, there've always been local clubs in Italy, there've always been lots yeah. of tennis courts in Italy. Um, so they didn't start from scratch, they didn't build it from nothing, and they're, they're probably doing some stuff right that can be studied. I think simply the fact of putting on lots of tournaments, making it possible for, for people to climb the ladder without having to go train in Spain like Caspar did or go you yeah. know, spend the whole year out of a resort in Egypt or Tunisia so you can play futures, that's huge. That makes a big difference in, in developing champions. Um, but it's not the whole thing. You couldn't just say, you know Montenegro, I hear you're interested in becoming a tennis superpower. Here's what yeah. you do there's not a recipe to follow it, it it's really hard to
0: climb that ladder unless you're already a few rungs up all right that's, thank you for that i think that's helpful to know just because i i i have a very precursory understanding of of what it takes to develop a quality institution like that and yeah from from what i can tell it does seem to be the major players consistently um really no no new breakthroughs i uh being of italian descent i'm you know very entertained by especially I mean, to to have center Berrettini Musetti as, la, as like a young top three crop. I mean, I, I really can't recall any other time when especially a, a small country like that had, you know, three really world-class caliber athletes at a time. Um, still still optimistic for the Americans. But uh this this leads me into a question about your experience, especially growing up here in the States, now being abroad these last couple of years. Um Tennis as a as a community element, as exercise in America. I mean, it, it's it, in a way. When I when I go play at public courts and there's no one there, I'm I'm like, okay, great. I've, I've got my. I'll pick the end court, the one that's in the sun. This is great. But I'm I'm also a little disheartened. I mean, on a on a Saturday in July. You know, I'm I'm here in New England, so that's our, our prime tennis season, of course. But I'm I'm disheartened to think why aren't these courts full? And I know that there was a heyday when that was not the case, and people have talked about the Connors days, the Sampras days, um, and, I, and I and I really don't know if it's fair to hang all that on the fact that we haven't had a, a Slam champion since Roddick. But um, I mean, I, just. I, I I wanted to get your take on this to see if if you have a guess as to what's changed. You mentioned a, a country like Italy where there's, I mean, the the tennis club is a real community uh, cornerstone, having a, a, you know as many courts as you can. You may know as if if you probably still have friends and family still here in the states. Pickleball is taking over now. I don't has has pickleball quite hit your area and and Europe as far as you can tell. Or has it been not that there? I know of. Okay.
1: I've, I've seen a little bit about paddle tennis, um, sure. I'm, but I'm not sure. I mean, there wasn't much tennis here to start with, so right. it's there's not a lot of tennis players to pick up pickleball. I mean, th- there's a lot of things going on. I mean, what one it is every sort of community based thing, especially community based thing, things offline. Like a lot of those things are suffering and have been yeah. for 10, 15 years. People just. Like, I, I know m- my grandfather once a week would go out to his, like, I think it was the Elk Lodge he was a part of. Like, that was just yeah. what he did every Tuesday night or whatever. And that's everyone in his small town. All, all the men just went and did that. And I'm never going to do that. Like, I, it's not that I'm against it. I, I wouldn't even know where to find it. Yeah, like, no kidding. It, what is our equivalent now? Like m- maybe if you go to the gym and you got a, a group at the gym, like maybe that's the equivalent, but you know, most of us don't go to the gym. And as soon as I get my house fully renovated, I'll have a treadmill here. So even if I wanted to go to the gym, why would I bother? Yeah. So it, that kind of stuff doesn't exist anymore. So the people who used to hang out at, at the tennis courts, because that was their community, there's fewer people like that. Like when I was playing the most tennis of my life, maybe 15 years ago, there was a group of people um, in a store in New York, right outside, outside of Manhattan, um, the courts were full, full every Saturday and Sunday morning. Um, those were who my friends were for a while, like mm. cross generational immigrants, native born, like totally wild mix of people. Yeah. Um, you'd never meet them any other way, but that, that was my, that, that was my social circle for a while. Uh, that sort of stuff is dying out. And at the same time, like you said, there's no, there's no Sampras, there's no Connors to in, to convince people to go pick up a racket and I don't know what, where the chicken and the egg is in that situation. Yeah. Is it that, is it that there's no new Sampras because, you know, 15 years ago people weren't picking up rackets and taking their kids out to the tennis courts, or is it, they're not out at the tennis courts because there's no Sampras. I don't know. Like you always hear that, you know, Tiafo has done this great thing. Therefore more people are going and picking up tennis. Maybe. I don't I know. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think so either. Maybe there's some effect on the margins, but it's it would take a lot for something really revolutionary to happen. We've had Serena and Venus Williams for 20 years. So I mean, if it's if it's gonna happen, wouldn't it have happened? Like, I mean, you, you can't get much more world beating or inspirational than that. So I don't know what what else do we need? I mean, I guess the sexist answer is that some people need to see a male champion. So fine, maybe we need a male champion, but I'm not sure that's a very satisfying answer. So I'm not sure it might just be the community thing. There's just, there's just so much to do uh, so many sports to pursue. I mean, even just, I don't know, in the tennis, 28 tennis, 128, I've discovered so many players who became champions because they just happened to grow up on the grounds of a tennis club or across the street from a tennis club, or they were the ball boy and their father ran the tennis club and they were there. And one of the things that's kind of frustrating for a lot of people in the modern world, especially in the U S is kids can't walk anywhere anymore. If you're going to go play tennis, you need a parent to drive you, which means your parents have to be free. There has to be an organized league. There has to be this, that, and the other thing. If you were Henri Cochet in the 1920s, you played tennis because that's where you lived your dad went to work there and you were paid you know pennies to shag balls or you could if you're maria bueno in brazil you could walk across the street that's just where you hung out i don't think there's very many people with that type of opportunity anymore and i don't know where you start if you don't have those kind of opportunities just because it you've got to spend so much time at something as a kid to become great at it and i'm not convinced that being you know, drafted into a youth development program by the USTA is a solution compared to just, you know, being like, like Pele, you know, playing soccer on the streets because everybody played soccer on the streets. (laughs) Like, I don't know. It's, it's tough to make tennis like that because it's just such a different sport and you need more equipment and it's a, a, can be a rich kid thing. It, It can never be like soccer and Pele, but it needs to be more like
0: that in order to get that sort of engagement. And I I'd, I'd love to see that gap closed. And, and of course, we're touching on some broader societal issues that you can't walk anywhere. So much of community is online based, uh, you know, things that do detract. But if that gap can close. Um, you know, but I also don't want to see it close into a place like Pickleball, which I know people love Pickleball because the court's smaller and you can drink while you play. And honestly, that's that's not good enough for me uh, it, to to speak a little more to the history, especially of great players. I love that you brought that up. One other thing I think is really important, it's a message I try to communicate to anyone I, I encounter uh, who has... Young kids who are getting really serious about a sport, Um, I think one of the best lessons we can take from the greats of a sport that we love, like tennis, uh, they didn't specialize from the jump. Yes, they had their local community court where they were intimately involved, but um, they were also playing soccer. They were skiing, uh, they were golfing, you know, whatever else it is, Um, and and it's not – uh, you know, in Europe, it's not like you're playing football, basketball, baseball, you know, m- maybe the options are somewhat limited, but uh, not specializing from a young age, I think, is actually uh, a great formula for someone who wants to develop a skill set in a particular sport down the road. But from the coaches I talked to who have worked with middle school athletes all the way through Olympians, they say, don't choose your one sport until junior year in high school till so you're 16, 17 years old. You should be playing as much as possible. And, you know, the operative word there being playing is, you know, it, it shouldn't be a job you shouldn't be thrust into a, a development program when you're nine because you know you and your parents think that that's the path to your your sports career um but that's a that's a broader issue as well now jeff you're, you're definitely more of a student of the game and i and i think the distinction i'll make between that and fans is fans can be casual they might watch without really any appreciation for what's going on aside from the excitement of a point um you're of course getting mired in in the data in history and and all things that make you a student if we put our fan hats on for a second i'd love to hear some of your great memories if you have enjoyed any in-person tenement if tennis if you have any uh great memories from tournaments you've been to but also favorite players favorite rivalries in in your lifetime not just what you you know read or or uh, consumed secondhand so yeah if you'll indulge me and put your fan hat on for a second what are some great memories have you enjoyed as a fan
1: Let's see. Uh, I lived in New York for a long time, so I went to the okay. U.S. Open every year for several mm. years. And and I always – I prefer going to qualifying matches, not a lot yeah. of people in the stands, maybe players you don't know as well. But the one exception to that is there was one year – I want to say 2009, but I could fact-check this and maybe prove proven wrong. I think it was the fourth mm. round or something, to sit pretty close as long as you got – and I think in one day I saw um, – I saw Federer play Mark Jaquel, and that was memorable because I think Federer won the first 16 points or something of that match. It was just, it was so dominating. Jaquel was just laughing by the end of the time. <laughs> he finally scored his first point in the fourth or fifth game. And, and oh, it was one of those like, hey, I'm on yeah. the board. And then I think them, of course, Federer won. And they upset the Bryan brothers. Oh. So in, in one sense, I managed to see like the greatest day of Mikhail Eugenie's life. In another way, it was pretty good, even apart from that, because, you know, Federer and Nadal, the Bryan brothers on an Armstrong court. So I'm afraid that when we fact check this, it might be one of those stories that's gotten better in my memory. Maybe that didn't all happen (laughs) on the same day or quite in that order, but something like that. Those are all matches I went to. I know that much. Amazing, uh, and definitely stick in the memory. But for me, it's it's um, it's so much about proximity. And like I, I, never really enjoyed sitting up in the upper deck in Arthur Ashe, even if it was a really big match. Yeah. I, one of my friends had tickets to the women's final one year, and I mean it's, it's great that I got to go, but it didn't really feel like I was part of it. And it, at the U.S. Open, if you go early, and even if you've got a grounds pass, you can get right up there, and like pretty much every every tournament I've gone to for the last. I don't know, 15 years. Um, that's always what I strive to do. Like I, I, I want, I remember, I think three years ago, I went to the, I went to Bercy for the Paris masters. I was just there for one day early in the week. And I had a, t- a decent ticket for the main stadium, but then there's these two underground courts, uh, and they're tiny, like people rip on them because they're, they're so small for a master, but underground, you said, they're underground, yeah. They're. Um, I mean, it's it's like an it's an arena. Like the, the, that that venue is used for other sports when it's the other fifty weeks of the year. Hmm. But yeah, you you go underground to the basement of the arena, and that's where they put in the wow. the other two courts. And yeah, they're, they're pretty puny courts by Masters one thousand standards. But I thought they were awesome. Like all, all the better for you as a spectator exactly yeah if you can get in the smaller the better and it it it, it does kind of feel like a basement it's it's a it's it's an unusual place to be but Mm. who was it um shoot I wish I remember why hmm was there a brief time that Agassi was coaching Djokovic am I making that up no you're not yeah okay that's what I thought I I can't remember who the doubles match was but like joke one of Djokovic's friends was was playing a doubles match and agassi was down there with him so i'm at one corner of the court court side and at the other corner of the court is andre agassi watching the coach's box i think i'm not making that up it's something like that but i mean that that that's what i enjoy as a fan like to me i'd rather i'd rather watch qualifiers or challengers from you know, from 10 feet away than sit in the upper deck for Nadal, federer or the next grand yeah. zone final
0: that's a very healthy take on that. And I, I urge people to do the same. My friends in New York, I'm, I'm very lucky that my mom, uh, still has her condo out in Palm Springs. So we, uh, in 2019, we went to Indian Wells and, uh, Friday, my girlfriend and I had grounds passes and pure serendipity on, uh, the practice courts, uh, two courts uh, right next to each other and the snow capped mountains in the background. On the forecourt were Djokovic and Fonini practicing uh, for their doubles. On the next court was Roger just hitting serves. I mean, if, if you've seen him practice, it's very unstructured, which was pretty cool. And uh, so just to see those two on the practice court were like, wow, I, I could die happy uh, now. The next day was uh, quarterfinals, Roger versus hercatch and Rafa versus Khachanov. And I mean... I, I, I can die happy now being able to see the three greatest players of this generation in a, in a 48 hour period. But, uh, but to be court level for practice. And then we saw Sabalenka practice. We saw Angie Kerber practice. Uh, so to see, to be there for practice was, was really special, but man, to bop in on other courses courses, uh, courts, excuse me, see some doubles, you know, uh, I, I forget, but it was some top seed doubles matches. That, that's the stuff that really, uh, it, it, as you said, sticks in your memories. If you can see something closer to court level, um, I mean, it, it it changes everything you know. This was brought to my attention by the podcast I follow, Tennis TV. You're you're seeing a very uh, sort of uh, unnatural angle to to be above the court. The ball looks like it's going so so. You have no appreciation of net clearance of the height that they're hitting it at. Um, I mean, as with most things, that you know, you you really get a, a much richer experience in, in person um although although baseball you know it's nice when you're watching baseball in November and you're at, in the in the comforts of home and not you know so, not freezing to death in the seats um I I, I think I'll, I'll have to use this opportunity to talk a little baseball with you uh something that that sort of uh, again uh disheartens me a little bit is I used to feel like every pitch in baseball mattered. Because it fe- it felt like anything could happen, right? Just there, there seemed to be a lot more strategy involved, uh, just a lot more excitement, and like you're you're waiting with, especially if you're there, you're waiting with bated breath. It's not this. I mean, I don't know if you've been to a baseball game lately, but uh, it's this distracted social element. People are on their phones. People are they're just not paying attention and i get it i mean if you hear the crack of the bat and you see the ball flying out to the outfield it's funny because your average fly ball people are out of their seats because they think it's a home run because they, they don't quite know where the ball is and they're not paying attention but um uh my questions for you do you still follow the game do you find it to be entertaining and compelling is there and i think most importantly jeff i would love to hear someone with your season background following the game any suggestions you have to improve the entertainment and viewership factors of the game. I know there have been, you may have heard at the uh, Cooperstown dinner. Um, I think it was earlier this fall that a lot of the game's greats were really pressing uh, Rod Manfred about things that he could be doing differently. But uh, as a fan of the game, I'd love to hear your thoughts just in the arc of your viewership, things that have changed and things you'd love to see done differently.
1: Well, it seems like something has to be done about just landing on every at-bat being a home run or a strikeout. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that I would encourage anybody, you or anyone who's listening, like I said, Joe Posnanski is the best in the business. He's yeah. writing about this stuff a lot. He has a better, better, broader, deeper perspective than I do on all this stuff. Um, and like, part of it is comes back to the pitch clock. It's not specifically what you asked about, but to me in tennis and baseball, so much of it comes to just keeping the game moving. Like yeah. even even when I started watching baseball, maybe the late eighties, like a three hour game was long. Like you'd get some three hour games, but it was a long game. Um, Tennis. You could get a five set match done in three hours. Now you're lucky to get it done in five. Um, It's, it's really parallel things going on. And I get, like you say, I get it too. Why, why people are in the stands on their phones because there's just so much time between swinging strike and called strike Yeah. Foul tip and the next swinging strike and then, oh, weak grounder to the first baseman where someone has been shifted right into position for an easy out. Like that's that's baseball. And I'd probably be on my phone, too. Um, So this is a bit of a digression, but something I've been thinking about a lot the last couple of days and might come around answering your question. So it, Derek Thompson just wrote this article for the Atlantic, uh, and he, he was making a broader point about analytics in society, but specifically about baseball, he said he's basically stopped watching baseball. And his his point was that baseball is kind of solved, um, that all, all the analytics have done is we've learned that, okay, all we need is a bunch of relievers who can throw 100 miles an hour, um, a new reliever every inning, yep. everyone shifting into the right place, and thus, it's solved. There's no, there's not not much mystery, there's not much magic. I'm putting a lot of words in his mouth here, but a lot of the stuff that we all loved about baseball when we were kids, it's been it, it's been solved out of the game. And I think that's probably overstating the case, but there's definitely some truth in that. And he makes the distinction between finite and infinite games, and that goes down a long rabbit hole. But the idea is that there's some things that are meant to be solved and some things that ha- involve interplay that aren't meant to be solved. And you can say like, I like um, that. solving a game is like a jigsaw puzzle. An infinite game is, the example is always like a marriage. Like it's a it's a game in a sense, but you don't want it to end <laughs> most of yeah. the time. Uh, so for a specific team, the goal is to win the game. Like that's what it means to solve it. And every team is trying to win trying to win their games, obviously. So they're trying to solve the game of get the fielders in the right place, get the right pitcher on the mound in the third inning and so on and so forth. Um, But for fans, baseball or any sport is an infinite game. Like you don't want it to be solved. You don't want it to always be exactly the same. And the only person with the power to to control that is the commissioner or in, in different sports, whoever's in power. And over time, depending on the sport, especially like you do see changes. So Posnansky wrote about this recently and gave the example of NFL football. And the NFL is always making little tweaks. Like mm-hmm. if, if fans want more passing, they tweak the rules or tweak the enforcement of the rules to uh-huh. get more passing. Tennis, if people want to see more Nadal, hmm. suspiciously, the courts seem to be slower all across the tour. Like mm. there's a lot of things you can do on the margins to tweak the game, to make it more what the fans want and the problem is is that a lot of the loudest fans and a lot of the institutions they think what they want is tradition so baseball is terrified to touch all sorts of things and you you can see it like i would give rob Man- manford a ton of credit for pushing as hard as he has on things like a pitch clock um limiting pitching changes i mean not, not enough but the, the yeah. idea of limiting pitching changes at all like that was that was an absolute no go zone a decade ago. No one right. would even thought about it 10, yeah. 15 years ago. And now, now we have it. Um, tennis is even worse. Like tennis is so stultified in its tradition. And of course, the governing body. Thank you for so saying so. Yeah. If, if you wanted to change things, like, tournament, like I say, tournaments can change things like Djokovic made a, a little bit of a headline by saying that tournaments were tweaking surfaces from year to year based on what mm-hmm. the players wanted. So there is a little bit of that, of that, that goes on, like players can can change their rackets. Um, the tours can change their rules about equipment a little bit, but for the most part, tennis is stuck where it's at, but baseball has a fairly powerful commissioner who can make those tweaks. And that's like, I don't know exactly what they should be, but I think that they need to be bolder rather than more cautious. And like I say, the, the pitching change rules are a big step. The pitch clock, I think the pitch clock is going to make a big difference, but um, it's, it's tough. I mean, there's going to be so much pushback at every step. So I'm not sure how fast Rob Manfred can go. Um, He might be going as fast as he could,
0: as he can right now, Yeah. Um, and I think that they have, I, I think his, and correct me if I'm wrong, you might know this, but I think they have an implementation rule that, I mean, it's like rule proposal tested out in the minors. And then like, they, there's, it, these things do take time Uh, just, just yeah. to get them rolling and let alone get any support for them. If we, if we take one, Jeff, the shift would, if you're, if you're a commissioner for a day, would you outlaw it? No, no, I know. It's, I do it, it, It's like, t- it's I, tough to handcuff people like that. Yeah,
1: maybe. I mean, it's it, it outlawing the shift means saying like the second baseman or the shortstop have to stay on their sides of second base. Is that all? When you say outlawing the
0: shift, is that all it is? I I guess so. Yeah. I mean, just yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of how I think of it is as a very traditionally designated radius for it's, them. So I guess I guess that's okay. Like, I, I, I think when I
1: first heard about outlawing the shift, I thought it would mean something more draconian. But if all it means is everybody's got to stay on their side of the field, then I'm okay with that. I mean, that, that'll generate more balls in play. I think the bigger deal is making pitchers stay in the game, but do something. Like, yeah. the the pitcher-batter balance is so out of whack. Uh, and, and going back again to the tradition thing, like back in the 19th century, it seemed like every year there was a new – I just said that like I remembered um, <laughs> back in the nineteenth century. Um, yeah, back in my day.
0: Well, you, um, you probably lived there like, a
1: lot in your in your research. <laughs> it feels like it sometimes, but it, they would change the number of balls and the number of strikes, or the rule for what what a foul tip meant. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at one point in tennis history, they changed the height of the net posts. I mean. And, hmm granted we we can't do that now i get it these games are 150 plus years old you can't go back to the the fluidity of 1879 that's fine but uh but there's probably a a happier middle ground in there somewhere
0: yeah well i I think you're on to something too which is uh When we talk about these institutions, whether it's government institutions, religious institutions, sports, as we're talking about today, when when you and I speak fondly of baseball, we're talking about a memory. I mean, we're talking about things that we loved from its origin, from its evolution. And I mean, luckily, we can still be critical of of. The way it operates now but uh yeah i mean from generation to generation I, I think older fans of baseball of course are thinking you know they're disgruntled because they're you know they have their fond memories of how it used to be um to to round out the subject other than maybe shortening a serve clock anything else in tennis tradition that you think is like a a glaring need for change anything you think would be a a, a timely changing course that should be considered on the tour.
1: I actually think that if if you can somehow fix the time between points, a lot of other things follow. And I, I would have a long list of stuff to tweak, except, I mean, in general, I am a traditionalist. I feel like tennis is a great game. It was a great game in 1922 and it's a great game in 2022. Uh, and the, because of the nature of the game, because it's one-on-one, you have to react to everything your opponent does. Um, a lot of changes kind of get sorted out, like the, the rackets got got bigger and stronger. So for a while, servers were dominant, but then everyone grew up to be a great returner. So yeah. you don't see, I mean, there are still some big servers, but you don't have an era of like even and Krychek and Filipousis like you did 20 years yeah. ago that had everyone worried about the death of tennis. So oh. in a way, tennis avoids a lot of that stuff.
0: Uh, what were you going to say? You, you, you mentioned Philip Filipusis. I'm so glad you did it because I wanted to ask you about this. Did you see his recent sit-down with Tennis Channel? I did not. Um, the one clip I saw, which I'd love to get your take on, is he was talking about how soft some of the players are, most of the players are today. And, uh, I mean, you've you've seen a lot of tennis, so, I mean, if there's two cents to be deposited here. He was talking especially about, like, if you hit someone. You're both at the net or, you know, you, you just have those points, you know, where, where you go after someone. And Filipusa said, he said, now if you hit someone, you have to send them an email, a postcard, a phone call, you an Instagram post, a Facebook message, apologize to them in the off-court interview. And it's bloody true. I mean, you see, you know, you, you stop the point and you give that faux apology and... You know and then and then it sort of bleeds over into like the the handshake at the net you have to hug them and, and embrace them for 5 seconds and it does seem a little more I mean you see this in basketball too how all the competitors they train with each other in the off season they all seem like buddies um I mean yeah do you have any commentary on the like, like I never had a problem that Novak wasn't buddies with Rafa and Roger I mean they they seem to be getting along much better now but I I love some an adversarial nature in tennis. It's it's one-on-one combat. It's it's bloodless boxing in my in my book. So um what do you think about some of the the softness that has come about? Because yeah, you know, Philip Poussis was part of that last era of and he said he said, if I hit you, I'm going after you again, and I'm not apologizing for it. I'm I'm here to win the match. So yeah, any any thoughts you have on just how soft we are now?
1: Well, there, there's there's two aspects to that. One is yeah, there wasn't the wave of apologies um that there is now, but players didn't like it either. Mm. Like it, 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 you weren't you weren't hugging it out at the net, but you were kind of sniping it out in the press afterwards if it was yeah. a big match. So I mean, I'm that's different. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it's better. I'm not sure if it means you're tough if you're going and complaining to your favorite columnist who's gonna write it up in the paper. Yeah. Um, i'm I'm not convinced. But the other thing is, I don't know how much of it is authentic. Uh, one thing I I discovered uh, researching Lindsay Davenport for the, the essay I wrote about her earlier this week, is if you think about the era when she was in her prime, like late 90s, early 2000s, mm-hmm. that was the Spice Girls era of tennis. So you had yeah. Venus and Serena who were making waves. You had Martina Hingis saying all these saucy things and Anna Kornikova being in the press for reasons other oh, yeah. than her tennis. It was a great time to be a controversial star, um, but Lindsay Davenport was not. I mean, she she dropped a lot of f bombs on court, but she was very careful in interviews. Like she was the good girl, she was the well-adjusted one, and to some extent, that was true. That it was who she was and who she is. But the point is, is that you know, cornikova Hingis, the Williamses, later Maria Sharapova, they all got rich from endorsements. Absolutely, mm-hmm. but around the turn of the century. Who was it who was representing American Express or Rolex or the really classy brands that didn't yeah. want to be associated with controversy? That was Lindsay Davenport. You don't think of her as a big, big endorser, rate breaking in tens of millions of dollars, but she was indeed. Mm. Uh, I did I not know, know that, that. until yeah. I, until I researched it recently. I would have thought it was all it was all Hingis, Sharapova, and of course they they've done fine, but the, increasingly. The brands that that pay tennis players to put their faces on a, and on their logos is are the ones that want to avoid controversy. Increasingly, all corporations want to avoid controversy, unless it's you know specifically the right type of controversy right now. But that's a whole sure. different story. Um, but that means that you, you don't want to be the Spice Girl of 2022. You don't want to be the bad boy of 2022. Maybe there's some room for that. But are you seeing Nick Curios line up luxury brand sponsors? I mean, he does okay, but no, he's not like Roger Federer's got them all and and love him as I do. You can't be a much more bland in public like sadly. No, yeah. he and the other main guys of this generation have taught the tennis world, maybe the whole sports world, that the way to endorsement riches is blandness. And that blandness means if you hit somebody with a ball, like, You didn't really mean to. You're all friends out there. You're fighting as hard as you can until the last ball. And then you're friends again. You can joke around about it on Twitter.
0: Oh, I'm so glad I asked you that. Thank you for it.